Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Today, we are once again joined by our friend and coworker, Bridget Todd. Thank you so much for being here, Bridget. It's always a delight. Yay. Always a delight for me. I'm so happy to be back. Yes. And uh, we were talking before this about how important the topic that you brought to us today is and how much we've been wanting to talk about it. And because I can't help myself, I immediately thought about there's a new genre of horror movies about this very thing. And I actually find them quite disturbing because there's a sense of the, like, because we're talking about online harassment today. And these horror movies has this sense of, like, you can't control what happens on the internet. And that, like, there's this sinister force that is going to wreck your life. And no one takes you seriously, which is how Mm. a lot of horror movies do go, especially when you're talking about women of like, you know, raising the alarm. There's a problem here. And people are like, I don't see the problem or get over it. (laughs) Right. But I do. That was one of the first things when you sent this topic to us. And that was where my brain went. It's like, oh, yeah, I've seen these horror movies and they actually legitimately freaked me out. Well, I saw that movie Friended or wait, maybe it's called Unfriended. Unfriended. It's Unfriended. Where it's like, (laughs) nefarious stuff happening on the computer, on the internet, and Mm -hmm. you cannot control or escape it. That movie scared the crap out of me. It's funny that you bring this up because it is a really interesting parallel that I've never thought about before. Sort of how these horror movies really capitalize on this phenomenon that a lot of women online experience where it's something bad is happening online and no one is taking me seriously. Um... And it can really get out of control. I hadn't sort of thought about how films have really captured that. Yeah. And I was thinking on the ones that I've seen, which admittedly is only, you know, a handful, maybe 10. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love horror movies. And they are almost always, I can't think of an exception, a woman at the heart of it who just gets harassed and her entire life ruined and no one believes her. Um, and we'll like go to authorities or even go to like in some cases, uh, maybe a professor or like a mentor. And they're like, uh, don't really believe you. That can't that be that big of a problem. Uh, <laughs> get over it. And because as we've, we've spoken about, um, horror is a great reflection of current societal fears. And so it's interesting to me that we do see more and more of those types of movies. But we're not actually talking about the horror movie aspect today. We're talking about real-life instances of online harassment with women and marginalized communities. Yes? That's right. Although I do, I do agree that like movies and film do a great job of representing this. But it is a really scary topic. It's great fodder for a horror movie. You know, we have seen this wave of women facing harassment online for just doing their jobs in some cases, like journalists, or just for existing online at all. And I want to be very clear that I don't want to scare anyone. This is a, a can be kind of a heavy topic. Hopefully it won't be too heavy during this conversation. But, you know, it is, it is a reality. And so I think that as women, as queer folks, as trans folks, as marginalized people, the internet is rightfully our domain, right? Like that's the main thing that I want to drive home. 
we have been so instrumental in setting up the internet as it exists today. So it is our domain, and it's our right then to show up or not show up online however we please. And so I think that all of us should show up as our full, colorful, wonderful selves online, but we should still acknowledge some of the risks that it involves and some practical steps that we can take to keep ourselves safe online while we're saying all the things that we want to say and showing up in the ways that we want to show up. And so it's it can be tough because... Let's keep it real. Like, nobody likes talking about harassment. When I was doing research on this, almost every woman I spoke to was like, oh, I don't really like talking about it because people think you're a whiner. People are like, oh, you know, you're taking it too seriously. Like, oh, you know, what a baby, grow up. But that silence, that 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 kind of expectation that we just suck it up and, and you know, deal with it and not speak up about it is meaning that we're all kind of suffering in silence alone. And so... As much as it's a drag to talk about, we should definitely be talking about it. Yeah, and I think when we've talked about, like, I know this is a bigger conversation for a separate episode, but when people, you know, shout that First Amendment thing, and I always remember this argument I read that, well, imagine that you're somebody trying to speak and there's a thousand other voices yelling at you trying to shut you up. And then... What uh, what we're silencing people, as you said, and just the idea that, as you've said many times, Bridget, when you've been on here, that the internet is real life. Like, this is not just something that you can dismiss or suck it up and get over it. It impacts your everyday and it can be very hurtful and very scary. And recently, we've seen some pretty high-profile cases of women being forced off social media. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what you saw with Chrissy Teigen. Chrissy Teigen, she left Twitter in March. She said that the platform no longer served her positively. And this was a big deal for a few reasons. First of all, Chrissy Teigen, people used to call her like the mayor of Twitter. She was such a prolific user. If you use Twitter, you definitely probably saw her viral tweet. She was very funny. And she also was pretty embedded in Twitter, you know, Twitter as a company. She spoke at their, one of their company events. You know, she was pretty buddy-buddy with them. And so the fact that she was this powerful power user who was so prolific on the platform and that she didn't feel like the platform, you know, really served her positively really indicates the scope of the problem, right? This is probably their most high-profile VIP user, and that user was not able to have a positive experience on the platform and had to leave that platform. For me, that really indicates that something is broken with your platform. And to be clear, the kind of harassment that she was facing, it's not just people being like, oh, I don't like your cookbook, or oh, this joke's not funny. It was Pretty intense. She had QAnon followers constantly connecting her to baseless allegations of child abuse, as they do. Um, and this is especially awful considering that she was publicly dealing with a miscarriage that she talked about on Twitter. So pretty abhorrent behavior, you know. And I, I think there is a pretty big difference between criticism of someone who's a public figure or a celebrity and the kind of harassment that she faces that, frankly, nobody deserves. Right. I know there was a definite back and forth of the damned if you do, damned if you don't with her, whether it's because she did want to share 
the tragedy she went through as a way of saying you're not the only one, you know, and, and showing her heartbreak and being very honest to being too public. That, that That's being too public or she's doing this for sympathy, garnering sympathy versus, you know, you're not saying enough. It was such a weird back and forth of damned if she did, damned if she didn't. And it's also kind of the same difference that there were other people in here that were being, I guess, the best word, they were sicking people all this mm-hmm. other people. And it's amazing. I know just like the journalist who was the intern oh, who God, did yes. her first article. And it really just was, we investigated this, myself and two other reporters investigated this. Here's the article. I'm so proud to someone going after her and making her a target to the amount of harassment that she went through. And she wasn't even saying anything on Twitter, but the amount of vitriol and harassment she got was unreal. To be honest with you, that specific incident was what prompted me to do an episode of my own podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, about harassment. So the person that you're talking about, Brenna Smith, she's an intern at the USA Today. She tweeted that she had her first byline on a story about how defendants in the Capitol insurrection were using all of these sort of like backdoor approaches to crowdfund for their defense. And it was a fairly like standard piece. It was not an opinion piece or an op-ed. It was a standard reported piece about what's happening. It was a co-byline, her and another woman reporter whose name escapes me, and then a white male reporter, Will Careless. And so she tweeted so, so happy about her first byline as an intern. And I think it was Glenn Greenwald who retweeted it to his millions of followers to basically say that she should be ashamed of herself, you know, just a really mean tweet. And to be clear, if he had a problem with that article, there is a way to talk about the problems that you have with a piece that a a journalist writes in a way that is not harassment. It's It's so different to retweet an intern, you know, the power imbalance alone there, I think, is worth noting. It's so different to amplify your really harsh personal swipe at somebody who really doesn't have a lot of power. And yeah, when I saw that, it kind of broke my heart because I remember what it was like to be an intern. I remember what it was like to have, to feel like you didn't know what you were doing and to have people not take you seriously. And that would have broken me. And in her credit, I was so happy to see so many reporters, including folks like Ronan Farrow, you know, supporting her and being like, great job, like, good work, welcome to the journalism club. Because it would have really, really hurt me if a high-profile reporter with a big platform amplified this kind of attack against me because they didn't like something that I wrote. And so I'm so glad that you brought that up because that was such a, I don't know why, but it really, that incident really stuck with me and really just made me want to talk about harassment and sort of point out all of the things that women online are putting up with that we just shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to put up with this to do our jobs. Right. It definitely spoke to the fact that they weren't criticizing her work. They just were coming after her. They, half the people had no idea why they were mad other than, oh, you're calling us who were in support of the insurrection, which, by the way, yeah, we should be criticizing you, A, B, in something bad. And you said we're doing something bad. And all she really did was investigative journalism where they went down like different money trails to see what was happening. End of story. And then they were harassing her looks, harassing just her being a woman, being around. The amount of just hate and anger that came onto her, which made no sense because it was not of any critique to her work. It literally was just, you, I don't like you. you. You're an awful person. Of course, we're saying this nicely as what was on there because we know this whole range of harassment that happens, especially when it comes to the threats and the death threats that happen for people who 
are just doing their job. And essentially her doing her first piece, really being proud of the fact that she got something out there and doing something that was investigative, which seemed fairly straightforward as a piece. Like, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it was really upsetting to see. And, and she's not alone, unfortunately. According to a survey from the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, 73% of women journalists that they surveyed say they have experienced online violence in the course of their work. And then it goes even further because 20% of those women journalists who participated in this survey say they have been attacked offline in connection with online violence targeting them. So absolutely right. I am so sad to report that that what happened with her is not an isolated experience and that for so many women journalists, that online harassment, that that wave of online hate is then connected to offline real-world attacks or offline threats. And so it really is something that is not just happening online, even though it's very tempting to think that. It is something that has a real-world impact, both in the kind of silencing that Annie was talking about earlier and in the fact that this is like people showing up at your house, people calling your parents, things that are very, you know, very much happening in in your real world. Mm-hmm. I know I've spoken about this before on the show, but I, when I was a producer on this show, I got doxxed and I didn't have a big presence online. And also, like, it wasn't really advertised that I was on as part of the show. (sighs) And I just remember it being so shocking and feeling like, well, how did they find me? And it was very, very scary. And we had to hire security at our company. We had to put these systems like software in place. And being like the source of that just made me feel really small. <laughs> like, And it was what blows my mind. And this shouldn't matter at all, but it does to me. That it was a really, to me, not super controversial topic of the things we've discussed on this show. <laughs> like really not. It was making fun of that like hot, crazy Matrix video. And just that the whole idea of you don't even have to be somebody that's like famous or has a big following for this to happen to you, which is very frightening. I don't know, Bridget, if you want to speak about, have you experienced any harassment online? Yeah, I mean, I first of all, I'm so sorry to hear what you went through. And I'm sorry to hear that it sounds like it was a really isolating experience. I think that's the hallmark of so many folks that I talked to who have experienced that. Me, I mean, I've gotten my fair share of, like, sexist, gross, racist responses. You know, I once had a situation, um, I guess I would say this, at the beginning of the Trump administration and, like, in the Trump campaign, I guess the Trump era, I felt like online discourse had gotten a lot more heated. And so I noticed, you know, more people in my mentions saying racist things or or using racial slurs and that kind of thing. Only once in my life has harassment ever gotten to the point where I needed to involve, like, authorities. And this was kind of like you. This was when I was first starting out in my career. I, I was not someone who had any kind of big public profile. I think I had, like, 
maybe, I think I was on Twitter and had maybe a a couple handful of followers. I don't think I had Instagram. You know, I was not someone who was like a public figure at all. And similar to you, the thing that I was writing about was fairly mild. I remember very clearly it was this woman, Anita Sarkeesian, who at the time was making this uh, video series about tropes in video games. And so Lord knows she gets a whole hell of a lot of harassment that she does not deserve. And it is wild to to hear what happens to her. But I was just giving a pretty fact-based, like, aggregation of one of her videos. So it wasn't even like I was like, Anita Sarkeesian wrote this thing, and it was so great, and I really agreed. It was just like, here's what she says. And Mm -hmm. from that, somebody reached out to me and basically indicated that they knew where I lived. And I'm, I don't want to say too much, but the way that they were framed it, I was like, oh, this person actually somehow does know where I live. Like, he used such specific language to talk about where, where I used to live that, like, it occurred to me that he did know where I lived. And again, it was one of those things where I thought, how could anyone find this out about me? Why would anyone find this out about me? I'm such a nobody. But that is so, so important for folks to understand. You don't have to be Chrissy Teigen or you know, a a high-profile journalist or someone who talks a lot on social media or has a big following for someone to just decide that they want to harass you. And that's why it's so important to do what we can to make it harder for folks who would like to weaponize any kind of information that's out there about you to do that. Because it can happen, you know. You don't have to be high-profile for this to happen to you. It could really happen to anybody. Yes. (laughs) And and it is, it's so upsetting going back to that, like, silencing thing and just... I know I've I've said before about how I stopped online gaming because because of this very thing, and just those fears of, well, I guess it's safer if I don't say anything at all, which is the worst. <laughs> so, do you have some steps people can take to hopefully prevent this <laughs> at least a little bit? Absolutely. So, I have to give a shout out to journalists. Liz Lenz for this uh, helpful list. She was a guest on my podcast earlier this week. She really kind of gave me a little crash course in how we can prevent information from being weaponized against us by online harassers. And so I want to thank her so much for providing this. She's she's from the Midwest. She calls herself a practical Midwest mom. And so these are just some practical tips that we can all use. So the first one that she said was to be really choosy about what you decide to post on social media, specifically Instagram. Uh, Liz herself is a single mom, and she says that she never posts pictures of her kids on Instagram because she doesn't want their faces to be too familiar or too recognizable to people who would, you know, want to harass her. And, like, just in general with Instagram, it can you would be surprised what kind of things can be sort of, like, taken out of context, what kind of images can be taken out of context to smear you or harass you. And so... I know that kind of sucks. It's something that I do as well. Like, people always say, like, oh, Bridget, like, are you in a relationship? What's your what's your family like? Because I rarely, if ever, post things about my romantic life, my personal life on social media, precisely because of that, you know? And it does suck. It's, it sucks to feel like you have to be a little bit guarded about what you share on social media because you don't want, you know... You don't want people to to use it to weaponize you. Like, I see all my friends posting their Valentine's posts of them and their boo, and it's like, I don't do that. But Liz suggests that this is something that, like, really bums you out if you're like, man, I really want to be able to share whatever I want to share. 
You could consider having a private Instagram account, what the kids sometimes call a Finsta, just for your approved friends and family, and then a separate public Instagram account where you're a little bit more guarded. And so... That's just a way if you're if you if you really feel compelled to share things, but you don't want them be going to be going to a wide audience, that's one thing that you can do. Another is something that I had never heard of, which was signing up for a service called Delete Me or some kind of other service that scrubs your information from the web. And so, as I said earlier, and as you said, Annie, like I was really surprised that someone online was able to zero in on where I lived. And I spent a lot of time thinking, like, how could that be? How could someone have my address? Like, how is this happening to me? Well, I did not know this, but there are sites online that collect and sell your personal data. And if you sign up for a site like Delete Me or some kind of other similar site that scrubs your data from the internet, that will make it a lot harder for folks to find your personal information. And Liz actually says that the most times when harassers are able to find their target's personal information, like their address or their phone number, it's because of those kinds of sites that are just selling your personal information to whoever is willing to pay for it. And so, you know, this is not a commercial for Delete Me. They have not paid me in any way. But literally, after talking to Liz, I signed up for it. And I found 35 different sites that were selling my address, my current address where I currently am sitting right now online, Mm -hmm. but not anymore. So (laughs) sign up for something like that. (laughs) Boom. Yeah, it doesn't help that uh, things like the Facebook hack happened and sold 500 million people's information either. Exactly. It's like (laughs) when you think, when you put it in that context, there are so many bad actors out there making money off of our information, our data, right? Like when you think about it, it, it really is the the full picture is is terrifying, yeah. Another thing that she suggests, which is I also do, is deleting your tweets. Harassers love to take things that you've posted against you. So she recommends that everybody be deleting their tweets regularly. And again, it sucks to do this. I have had to delete some, some, some tweets I was like very proud of or like jokes I thought were particularly funny, even though I'm sure only I loved them. (laughs) Uh, But in the long run, it's so much safer. Because I mean... Think about every joke that you've ever made on Twitter that didn't land or everything you've ever tweeted after a few glasses of wine. And now think about that being on Twitter forever, that anybody who is inclined to can go back and dig and find and scrape and find that joke you made after four glasses of wine that you regret, right? And so for Liz, you know, she is this writer who writes a lot about politics and extremism, so she's often harassed. The thing that comes up with her a lot is this joke that she made after just a few drinks out with friends about online dating, where she tweeted, a man on Tinder unmatched with me after I told him I'm a journalist. What's he hiding? And so, obviously, that's just a joke, right? She's not, she's not, she didn't, it's just, it's just a, a joke that she made, you know, about her experiences dating as an online journalist. But to this day, people who are harassing her have screenshotted that joke. It's many years old now, and they use it to fraudulently claim or falsely claim that she doxed an innocent man because he wouldn't date her. This was a joke. <laughs> people, she says that people still ask her, like, "Did you dox an innocent man?" And she was like, "She's like, no, I was just, I was just kidding around on Twitter. Like, come on." And so, wow. yeah, it really just goes to show how people can take whatever you have to say really wildly out of context and use it to harass you. All right. Or if you remember Matt Gates. Yes. <laughs> Maybe evidence. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so you can go to tweetdelete.net. It is a free service that you can use to regularly delete your tweets without you even having to do anything. And I, I really recommend it because, again, it makes it so that you don't have these like, 
you know, you because you, you just you just don't know what thing someone's going to use to take out of context to harass you. Like I'm sure that when Liz made that joke, she wasn't thinking that years later people would still use it to falsely claim that she's doxing people who don't want to date her. So it can just be a good way to give you that peace of mind where it will make it a little bit harder for folks to find information out there about you to then use to harass you. Yeah, when you said that tweet, it seems such a, like a straightforward joke. I wouldn't have thought of how to use that as a way of against her. But yeah, now that you say it, I'm like, huh, okay. Okay, which is dumb. Because in my head, it was obviously a joke, but wow. <laughs> and yeah, we've definitely talked about Delete Me because we when we did a couple of episodes, including about incels, we were so sure. We were, we were holding our breath and going back and forth about what we were going to say, about how we were going to say it, and mm. whether or not we were going to be attacked. Uh, my partner at that time was like, oh, please don't do this. Please don't do this. You're going to get dogs. They're going to get you. And we did. We had that conversation of, okay, we're going to do delete me just in case. We need to check and see. And of course, I think we've got a pretty great audience and fam who know us enough to like, not use that as, oh, we're going to to show people who they are, essentially, I guess is the best way to say it. So we haven't gotten any backlash, but that definitely was a concern. And I hate mm. that that has to be a concern for us to even just talk about anything. We didn't even say anything necessarily bad other than what it was and what he yeah. has done and how it's impacted women. But that alone seems to be offensive in the nature of you're calling us out somehow. Right. Yeah, I mean, oh God, do I identify with what you just said? Even in this episode that I did about online harassment with Liz last week, I didn't tweet about that episode. I, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the only episode I didn't personally tweet about because of what you just said. I don't advocate anybody living in fear. And so I want to be very clear that I hope I'm not making it seem like, oh, this is so scary. But it is hard. It, it, and it sucks to have to be that mindful. It sucks to have to have a... that Sam, as a podcaster, you have to have a conversation with your partner about what what you can and can't say and what you should and shouldn't say and how to keep yourself safe if you say X, Y, Z just to do your job as a podcaster. Right. And I find myself always equivocating and being like, well, it's not even like I said anything. It's not like I did something bad, like express an opinion. Like it was, it was just a <laughs> fact-based account. And even that just seems like such a, such a, like it just really makes me feel as if I've internalized that I need to really watch what I say and that if I'm going to be talking about a handful of subjects like incels or harassment, I need to make sure that I am not expressing my opinions and I am just stating verifiable facts and blah, blah, blah. In the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to get on the radar of the wrong people. And that's just, it's, it just sucks that this is how we have to exist. (laughs) Right. I mean, shoot, this could be a whole other episode of how this is making it a backtrack for women who have finally come on board being able to be confident in their jobs and and being able to be confident in what they're doing. And now it's not so much that we are being mansplained or, you know, talked down. It's so much more that we are afraid, physically afraid of what the backlash will be, even if it is just a factual conversation that we're trying to have because we are women or we identify as women we may be targets in the story, whether it's because some man really takes it personally that we say this and this and this, the A, B, C, and D, whether it's, hey, this group is really, really, you know, not great for women. They, they treat women not so nicely, you know, stuff like that. White supremacy is not a great thing. What? How dare you? You know, stuff like that, where it seems obvious in this day and age, but we've kind of backtracked in 
living in fear for our safety, once again, just by saying something as where, you know, many of men right now are talking about cancel culture, whether it's because of the hashtag me too, or all of these things, or saying some stupid stuff, saying racist things and saying, oh, I'm being canceled. That's their biggest fear half the time where women are truly being threatened with rape and death. And it's a whole different level of, okay, how do we combat this? Yeah, it is terrifying. I mean, it kind of reminds me of that joke where men are afraid that their date is going to be unattractive. Women are afraid their date's going to kill them, right? It's, right. It's, it's, and again, I want to be very clear. There's a difference between legitimate criticism and response and all of that. But when a man puts his opinions out there, they're not, people don't respond by calling them a whore or, you know, a slur or saying they're going to be raped or that they're going to kill their kids. It's so different. And I think that you hit the nail on the head, Sam, in that we talk so much about cancel culture and things like that. We need to make room to talk about, you know, what happens when women and other marginalized people are pushed from these platforms because of this kind of harassment and even just the threat of it. What happens when, you know, prolific gamers like Annie just stop playing games online because of the harassment, right? Like, that is also a form of silencing and it's also a speech issue. And yet, when we talk about these things, the conversations around, like, cancel culture and that kind of thing just dominate the conversation. And we don't see the ways that an entire generation of women, people of color, and marginalized voices have been silenced and pushed off of their platforms because of harassment. And that is also something we should be talking about. Amen. Amen. <laughs> With all of these big platforms, Maybe I'm wrong, but there seems to be no protection. We've talked about the fact that Facebook already is now under a new foundation of accusations of the fact that they had millions of people's information have been hacked. And this is not the first time that that's happened to them. Um, we know that Twitter is on a constant battle between, hey, are you going to stop this level of harassment? What are you going to do? As well as when we talked about Twitch, what have they been doing for women gamers who are being constantly harassed? Is there not something more that they can do or is it just literally a free-for-all? So I'm glad that you asked this. There is so much they can be doing. The question is, do they want to do it? I think especially with Facebook, part of my day job involves trying to hold Facebook accountable. There is so much they can be doing. The question is, do they want to be doing it, right? And speaking of the Chrissy Teigen thing, Chrissy Teigen made it very clear. She was like, I don't blame Twitter for me having to leave the platform. They're like Twitter staffers, worked with her team to try to help her deal with the harassment that she faced regularly. And I'm sure they did. Chrissy Teigen is wealthy. She's well-connected. She's married to John Legend. She is an A-lister. And it doesn't surprise me that Twitter was very helpful in trying to help her handle this. But here's my thing. You shouldn't have to be Chrissy Teigen to get a tech platform to make it so that you can use their platform without facing this kind of intense harassment, right? A similar thing happened with Leslie Jones from who used to be on SNL and was on in the reboot of Ghostbusters. The kind of racist, sexist, disgusting, targeted harassment that she got, she eventually left Twitter. She deleted her Twitter account. And again, she was another prolific user. And Jack Dorsey, the head of Twitter, personally intervened to bring her back to the platform, which I thought was great. But again, you shouldn't have to be famous to get these big platforms to do something. And Bear in mind that a lot of the people who work for these platforms, 
They make so much money. These platforms have so much money. I refuse to believe that there is nothing they can do. But oftentimes it feels like we are just left alone to, you know, get delete me and be super careful about what we say and how we say it to protect ourselves in absence of their leadership. It is a total lack of leadership on their part. And we're all just left kind of picking up the pieces and it's horrible. Right. And it seems like it's growing companies like Delete Me and like the uh, Twitter site. They're getting money to do something that shouldn't be a concern to begin with to be a part of these social media platforms. And then I guess another question just out of like sites like Clubhouse, which is a whole new format now coming back through. I guess it's kind of a resurgence of the old <laughs> platforms of social media, however you want to say it. But what does securing ourselves look like before we even jump into those types of platforms? Well, with Clubhouse, that's a really good question. A lot of folks are, are interested in it. I would say the number one thing to remember about Clubhouse is even though the app really goes out of its way to be like, you know, don't record conversations, your conversations are being recorded. Like that, like right. that's just point blank, end of sentence. And so just know that whatever you say on Clubhouse, someone is probably recording it somewhere. And I think that that's something that I've seen with Clubhouse. I think because... Oh, and so for folks who don't know, Clubhouse is this... I think it's still an invite-only social media app that is audio and conversation-based. So basically, you join and you join a room and it's just people's voices in real time. And one of their big rules is no recording, even though it does get recorded. And so I think because of the ephemeral nature of an app where the interactions you have are just voice, I think that it can incite people to say wilder stuff and to, and to behave worse than they would in a written medium where there's going to be some record of it. And, you know, I've seen, if I'm being honest, I was in a clubhouse room with a A-list celebrity. I'm not going to say her name, but she's someone who you might know, where she was part of a harassment campaign against a doctor for giving information about COVID, right? And like, it was, when I watched it, I, part of me was like, I cannot even believe what I am listening to right now. Right. And I think the only reason why that happens is because people, they feel bolder or emboldened to behave like that because it's Clubhouse. And the whole, I think the vibe is like, oh, you can sort of get wild in these rooms late at night and there's no, there's no paper trail of it. But right. I think, you know, what it comes down to for me is that on any kind of social media app or really anything online, there needs to be very clear policies around what is tolerated and what's not tolerated. Otherwise, stuff just gets wild. And it's just the right. wild, wild west and people are being harassed and bullied and mis and disinformation is spreading and it can really be a free-for-all. So if there's one thing I know about technology is that if you don't have from the onset very clear and specific and explicit policies around this kind of thing, people will just do whatever and it'll be right. out of your control. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't say right out of the gate, you know, no white supremacists allowed. White supremacists <laughs> will find it. <laughs> and they did. But I found it interesting because in your case specifically, I don't have Clubhouse. It's an iPhone thing. And, and we've talked before, I don't have iPhone. And so therefore, I can't get an invite. I feel very, I don't feel sad, but sad at the same time. <laughs> but the fact is, that actually bled into Twitter. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And I know the level of harassment that the doctor went through yes. because of that. And no one took responsibility because they literally were like, eh, it was, a, it was a social media platform that no one really takes seriously. And yet exactly. people did. And so those who allowed for that kind of harassment to happen never acknowledged it as being a problem, which is, again, 
the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And yeah, Clubhouse, you know, it's not accessible for people who don't use iPhones. It's also not accessible just in general. Like, there's no cat, like, for an app that is being used by so many tech and Silicon Valley influencers, there's no captioning for folks who need captions. Like, it's so, it's wild to me that an app that is so not accessible is like such a big part of the conversation right now. Right. I know. Uh, yeah. I saw Instagram is trying to do something similar to it. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I think Twitter has spaces now. Like, it's, <laughs> it's going to become the new, the new vibe, I feel, that a lot of platforms right. are, are trying to adopt because that's how things are with tech, you know. <laughs> that's an interesting point because a lot of what we've been talking about is how the onus is on women and marginalized people to sort of put up with or deal with harassment that is almost expected. And when these new apps or uh, social media platforms come out, like I remember when Snapchat came out and people joked about how it was like dick roulette, you're gonna... And that was just the thing. And <laughs> and it's wild to me, like we've talked before about how women do face things like revenge porn or being your image manipulated and passed on and then sent to your family or sent everywhere and having that sort of gendered aspect to this. And then also, I think it's changed, but for a while, like Xbox Live had this whole thing of like how to deal with harassment online. And, you know, it had a couple bullet points, but the final bullet point was, if it gets too bad, leave. Mm. And it's like, uh... <laughs> I mean, think about that. Their official guidance was, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Like that, yep. like, that really tells you all you need to know about where they put the onus and the burden and the responsibility. Certainly not the people who are paid very handsomely to develop Xbox Live platforms. No, no. If you don't like it, you can just leave. That should not be what we're telling a generation of people who want to show up and use their voices and take up space online. No. And to the fact that social media has become so huge that if you're not a part of it, there are big aspects of job requirements that you're mm-hmm. going to miss out on. Like, that, just the fact that you have to be savvy with some of these platforms and, and the fact that, oh, well, you can't take it because you're a woman, maybe you shouldn't do this job, is kind of that push and pull, which is kind of like, this is absurd. But I did want to ask, because I'm not, I'm not sure, we've talked about a few examples of people being harassed. Have we seen examples where they kind of came up on top, even through all of that harassment? Or maybe where a platform actually did something good outside of Leslie Jones? Yeah, I mean, I I think that Leslie Jones is a good example. I can't think of a, a time where someone was harassed and they sort of had the last laugh. But I will say this, in that a lot of situations that you're seeing right now where particularly uh, women journalists are being harassed, the thing that gives me a lot of hope is I think that we're seeing a community come together to be like, that is not cool. And for me that really illustrates a kind of culture shift because I think a few years ago, that wouldn't have happened. So folks like um, Rachel Abrams at the New York Times, she did this critical report on the far right, you know, conspiracy peddling cable news network, One America News. And after she did that report, they put her personal phone number and email address, her personal cell phone number and email address on television and encouraged their viewers, many of whom are, to say, like fringe types, to reach out to her. They said, we encourage our viewers to stand up to the intimidation by the left and feel free to reach out to this Times writer. Now, I think if that had happened a couple of years ago and the Times was getting lots and lots of angry calls about this report, 
I w- it wouldn't be shocking to me if the Times fired her, suspended her, uh, or just did nothing, let her deal with this on her own. But the Times put out a statement supporting her and, and calling out what happened. And so I think that when we see these cases of outlets and institutions sticking up for their reporters who are the targets of this kind of harassment, and communities, it's like regular people online being like, this isn't cool, we see what's happening, this is harassment, and you should be ashamed of yourself. I think that's the only thing I can say is kind of people who are the targets of this kind of harassment getting through it. It really does take a community and institutional like response that is a united front. And I, I also just wanted to say something, you know, Sam, you, you brought up like, the idea that when companies like Xbox are just like, oh, well, you should just get off these platforms if it gets too bad. I wish I could get off Twitter, right? If I, <laughs> if I were wealthy, I would never be on Twitter arguing with people like, come on, you know? The reason, the thing that keeps me there is that the sad reality is for a lot of the kind of work that I do and a lot of people that I know do, you need to have a social media presence, Right. I once had a conversation with someone because I wanted to write a book. And the first thing they asked me was, how many Twitter followers do you have? You know, and so, and I think it's especially hard for folks who are otherwise marginalized or have a harder time getting a platform because social media can be a way that you can get opportunities that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so it's this real kind of catch-22 of like, I don't really enjoy being on Twitter anymore, but I feel like I have to be there because I know that it can be kind of validating for my professional work. And I need that validation because, you know, I don't work for the New York Times or work with Harvard or that kind of thing. And so, you know, for a lot of us, we need that validation where we can get it. But I do not enjoy spending time on Twitter a lot of the times. It it can be a real unpleasant experience, but it's one that I feel like I, I unfortunately sometimes need to be there to get that kind of validation. I mean, it's almost like a currency. It is a part of your resume now. That's that's what exactly what I'm saying. Like, it would be great if we weren't so dependent, but it's become such a dependent part of our careers and our livelihoods that it's hard not to. Just like be having to have the internet in order to work. The likelihood of you being successful without having that type of connection is is not. You're not going to be able to proceed or move on or move forward. And you need to have that type of experience. Uh, and you're right. And, the, and it's amazing the level of what that blue check mark means. You know, it, it is this whole like validating whether or not, not because you want it or because you have to have it, but because you need it for your career. Yeah. And to be taken seriously. And it's such an absurd idea, but that's how far we've become involved in the social media world. And that's also why having types of harassment like this needs to be taken seriously, but people don't want to because they don't want to take it seriously. But you can't walk away from that because it's already been established as a part of our world uh, culture. Yeah, and I think back in the early days of our company, I had to uh, respond to every YouTube comment. And I legitimately went to my boss and said, I think this qualifies as sexual harassment. And we had to like sit down and talk about the legality of if you're going to make me respond to these comments that are awful... Like, is that legal? And I think that's a conversation we're going to have to continue to have, especially if it's part of your job requirement. And I think that the whole idea, Bridget, that, you know, I, you find Twitter to be often a terrible experience, that should say something. As, as someone who developed a platform, 
if people were telling me, <laughs> I actually really dread your platform, I just feel like that's, you've got to think about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I want to be clear that I actually believe that, particularly for Twitter, that thing of not enjoying being there, I think that is baked into Twitter's functionality because of the way that the algorithm works, things that you say that are inflammatory get much more traction than things that you say that are not inflammatory. You know, things that you say that are untrue get much more traction than things that you say that are true. And I think that Twitter, because of the way that the algorithm works, I think it amplifies inflammatory takes, mean tweets, not even things that maybe qualify as harassment, but like things that are, yeah, inflammatory, I guess is the only word I can think of for it. And I think when you are on a platform where the content that you're being surfaced most often is content that is inflammatory or highly charged or negative, and then the content that is positive or thoughtful or nuanced, you're seeing less of, it's no wonder that so many people report Twitter, you know, not feeling good, you know? And I think especially as we're with COVID and the quarantine, it's like, we're on social media so much more and we're all exhausted and stressed and anxious and just like not being our best selves. And I think it is a recipe for it just not being a very good user experience. And it's a user experience that is marked by bad faith criticism and inflammatory comments. And that's how I feel when I'm on Twitter, to be honest with you. It's like, I see things that bum me out and it just makes me so sad that 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 is the the driving the driving feeling of this kind of discourse. And I remember the days when Twitter used to feel hilarious. Like right. the early days of Black Twitter, something would happen and we would be laughing about stuff for weeks. It was so much fun. Or when like a bad movie was premiering on Lifetime and we were all going to watch it as a family and make fun of it. I, we used to have a blast. And I feel like those days are gone and they have been replaced with conversations that are tedious at best and like, really harmful at worst. <sighs> Agreed. I miss the days <laughs> where I just watch a mascot who fell over and can't get back up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> well, I know we've covered some ground in this one, but did you, I know there were some other examples you bought of like high profile examples of online harassment. Do you want to talk about those? There's, so there's two I want to mention. The Washington Post sung Min Kim. So, during the Senate confirmation hearing for Neera Tandon, Neera Tandon was tapped by the Biden administration to lead the Office of Budget and Management. Tandon's harsh critical tweets were cited as the reason why some Republican senators would not vote to confirm her. Now, this is its own complicated gender story on its on its own, but like that's a topic for another episode. But Sung Min Kim, who is this uh, journalist, she was interviewing Senator Lisa Murkowski about Tandon's tweets, and Senator Murkowski said that she had not seen them. And so she, on her cell phone, showed Senator Murkowski some of these tweets to, to, to get her comment. Now, this is a completely standard process for journalists, like nothing, un nothing unusual or unethical happened, but she was photographed showing Senator Murkowski this tweet, and people make it seem like she had done you know, something unethical or something, you know, something bad. And she was like really harshly, harshly harassed for this. And I have to say, the people who were doing a lot of the harassing were folks on the left, folks who were like, oh, like you're getting in the way of Biden having his, his person confirmed, how dare you? And so it was pretty harsh to see that. And I also want to make sure that it's clear that 
you know, this journalist, she's Asian American, and we know that women of color, it's harder for us when we face online harassment. According to an Amnesty International report, Black women were most at risk, with a study determining that we're 84% more likely than white women to experience abuse on Twitter. Latinx women were 81% more likely, and Asian women were 70% more likely. And so this stuff is always worse when you're marginalized. Like, I felt so bad seeing this person just being harassed in this very harsh, charged way just for doing her job, you know? And I also wanted to point out uh, the New York Times' Taylor Lorenz, who uh, Sam, I think, mentioned earlier. That's a situation where it really... It just something where it's like, if it was happening to me, I would be, I don't even know what I would be doing. I would be so, I would be so hurt. For International Women's Day, uh, back in March, Taylor Lorenz tweeted, for International Women's Day, please consider supporting women enduring online harassment. It's not an exaggeration to say harassment and smear campaigns that I have faced over the past year have destroyed my life. No one should have to go through this. And I bet you can guess what happened next. Fox News' Tucker Carlson used his huge platform of 4.33 million viewers, literally the highest-rated U.S. cable news TV program in history. He spent two full nights just making fun of her. It wasn't even a news story. It basically, she didn't even report anything. She was just said, this is my experience as a woman who has faced online harassment, you know, stick up for women for International Women's Day. Just that one tweet he did two back-to-back nights with segments just making fun of her for, as he put it, pretending to be oppressed, right? And so the fact that he used such a massive platform just to crap on a woman for talking about her experiences dealing with harassment, I think it just goes to show that when we talk about these things, people really don't like it. And it, can, it really, we need to change that. We need to make it so that when we talk about our experiences online and speak up about them, we're not attacked further, that we're listened to and supported, you know? And I think that's kind of the the ultimate point that I want to make in this episode, I guess, is that online harassment is very real. If it impacts you or hurts you or otherwise makes you feel like you are not able to show up as your full best self, that is a completely valid way to feel. And you shouldn't let people make you feel like you're being a baby or that you're whining or that you should just turn off the computer or just log off. You know, if, if it if it gets to you, you know, it is harmful, it is silencing, and it's something that none of us should be dealing with. And I just want to make that very clear that the kind of things that these women are going through is just not acceptable. Right. And yeah, it was incredible just to see the responses. It made no sense. I was really like, who is this? Was she a stand-up comedian? Before I, right before I knew what was going on, I was like, did she say something as a stand-up comedian? Because, you know, that's usually kind of the level that people will go after so that you said something offensive in a joke. That's what I was like, maybe she did that. And just realizing all she said was, be nice. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was enough to elicit all of this hate just because I was just kind of dumbfounded in that sense of because she's a notable person, meaning she has some kind of platform. She's a journalist. And all she said was, I've gone through some bad things. Not even talking about anything specific. And then, please be nice. And that's the uh, and that brought the ire of one yeah. very angry white white man who <laughs> apparently is just angry about women, period, and marginalized people, period. I mean, we see how dangerous it is when white men get angry, and like and like this is this is a great example. Two nights, yeah. and mind you, this was two nights where big news was happening. You know, up, right. so many other huge things are happening in the world, and you're going to spend two nights talking about a journalist who tweeted about her experience and telling people to be nice? Like, really? 
Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to give it to her, like her willing to back other women who are going through things, especially journalists, including, you know, rallying behind Brennan Smith. It was beautiful. I, I'd love to see when things do show, because when she did that, those who realize what is happening are going to fight even harder. And and that's what he's, I don't think he knew what was going to happen was that you kind of gave her credibility oh, yeah. as a journalist <laughs> in itself. End of story. No matter what, you gave her enough credibility to the rest of us who know who what he is doing, that she is a fierce individual to be afraid of for him. Obviously, he's fearing something here. And I love seeing that she was rallying behind Smith and being like, hey, <laughs> I got your back. Yes. I mean, that's, that's sort of the like, I, obviously, I hate seeing people being harassed in this way, but that's been right. the sort of silver lining is seeing exactly. women come out and like just go hard for other women. You know, women lifting as they climb and be like, listen, girl, I've been harassed. I see you're going through it. I support you. And that is really, I think, it's just been beautiful to see, you know, there is nothing like the power of women being in community with each other. When we come together in support of each other and when we're pissed the f*** off also, right, right. we can take on the Tucker Carlson's of the world, the people who have these huge platforms and all this institutional power. The power of women being in community with each other it is, is a powerful, powerful, special thing. And it has been very endearing to witness that in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much so. Thank you so much, Bridget, as always, for being here. You always bring such great conversation. Um, where can the good listeners find you? Well, again, I have to shout out uh, Liz Lenz, who is an amazing journalist who really helped me put together all of my ideas for this episode. If you want to hear from Liz herself, you can check out the most recent episode of my podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, on this very network. And yeah, subscribe. We would love to have you. And you can find me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. And on Twitter at Bridget Marie. <laughs> I know I just said I hate being on Twitter and you should still follow me. I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Provide support and I guess gifts of mascots falling over. Yes. Is that what we like? I miss those. Mine's yes. been deleted. I actually had one saved and it got deleted. I was very sad about this. I, was like, I just want to see it uh, one more time. The struggle. I think we can help you with this. Okay. But yes, Bridget, you, I follow you and I think you have some really great messages and I always love seeing your perspective because even though it is an awful, awful place to be, you put up some good, good resources. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, and the, one of my uh, idols online, she says, when you are online, don't turn to the darkness, bring the light. So I always try to bring the light on social media. <laughs> Awesome. And listeners, if you would like to email us, you can. Our email is stuffmedia.momstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've never told you is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 